This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. From this nightmare world emerges a fearsome half-man, half-ape with the strength of 20 demons. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Video Junkyard Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Peterson. With me as always, Eric O'Branson. Eric, how's it going? Good. Welcome, everybody. This is episode number 11 of the Video Junkyard Podcast. I can't believe this we've already done goes to 11. <laughs> it does tonight. Tonight it does. Yeah, and of course, with plenty, plenty more uh, coming down the pipeline soon, we've got some some other of our... We're going to keep doing these kind of two-parter episodes that we talked about last week. Uh, so this is actually part two of our werewolf special, where last week we talked about the great Neil Marshall film, Dog Soldiers. Uh, and this week we're going to continue it off with another great one, another great werewolf film. So how are things been going, though? Things have been going good. Don't have any complaints. <laughs> have yeah. uh, gotten a chance to do anything exciting? What have you guys been up to? Uh, not really that much. Kind of the kids are getting ready to start school here in a couple of weeks, so I've been working on trying to get all the registration stuff set and coordinating, you know, oh boy. all of that fun stuff yeah i look forward to that in a few years not really (laughs) see yours are like exactly the same age or off by minutes um yes mine are off by (laughs) four years so three minutes apart they're three minutes apart yeah so mine are four (laughs) years apart so it's trying to coordinate okay this one's going to third grade and this one's starting kind of a pre-kindergarten so it's been uh, a lot of fun with stuff like that and also even though i got back from the field a couple weeks ago there's still that still trying to tie up some loose ends and things that work from that but um right actually though we've you and i've been working quite a lot though lately on on planning future episodes of the podcast so i've yes. been amassing films and yeah um, i just ordered like and <laughs> had to explain this to the wife you know like I, why yeah. i just spent 100 bucks on movies when which isn't really all that weird um i'm feel like i'm always expending why explaining why i just spent 100 bucks on movies but um so we uh we got ourselves scheduled out through, I think, the middle of November at this point, uh, shows-wise, and um, which will sound uh, not quite as far out to you listening to this, because we're recording ahead of time, of course, but um, as, as I'm speaking right now, it's still August, and we are I've uh, got my mm-hmm. slate of movies to watch all the way through the middle of November, so it's actually a good thing, because I'll, I'll not be, you know, crunch time on the week we're supposed to be recording something like i finished watching an american werewolf in london uh yesterday evening so (laughs) i mean that's how much time i allowed myself so have a little more time to digest or or what i would really love to do is be able to spend some time with actually you know watching some of the special features commentaries stuff like that and getting a little more immersed in these movies um haven't found the time to do that with a lot of them we've done so far uh hopefully that's not you know showing in our reviews but but really this is a fanboy podcast right we're just talking we're just sitting here talking about how much we like these movies we're not you know wikipedia is out there we don't need to 
you know, be spewing up a whole bunch of useless facts. I like to give like to give you guys enough background information that if you haven't seen the film, that the podcast is still listenable. But um, you know, I also am aware that things like Wikipedia exist and don't feel the need to just rattle off you know twenty random right. factoids uh, about every one this, of these films. So I like to talk about the fun but, ones, and we'll you know lead the other ones. But behind. this is one of the things that I've always been attracted to, to genre films, uh, you know, horror and sci-fi and fantasy in particular, uh, is that is the special effects and actually those behind-the-scenes oh, yeah. features are really what turned me on. It's like the the movie we're going to be talking about today with American Wolf in London. You know, this is um, the first horror film I ever saw. And it wasn't just the movie, it was the behind-the-scenes featurette that came after the video. Uh, and then, of course, being a kid in the, you know, in the, the early 80s, everybody was obsessed with Michael Jackson. So when Thriller came out, the video for Thriller was, was terrifying and also fascinating. Because it was the same special effects guy that did it, Rick Baker, and the same director, John Landis, yes. who did American Wolf in London, did Thriller. And so a lot of the effects are very similar as far as how they were done. And they did the great making of Thriller featurette. So it's actually some of the, the bonus features. You know, as I have mentioned earlier on in the podcast, I was one of the, the later holdouts into DVD. Yeah. Because I had amassed this big video collection. I didn't want to start all over. But then I started finding, oh, there's bonus content uh-huh. with all these behind-the-scenes <laughs> things. It's okay, still working and... on me to this day. Like, because they'll... Like, yeah. okay, a good example is the last two movies we were, we reviewed, right? These are both movies that I've owned mm-hmm. at some point in history. Dog Soldiers I owned on DVD and actually sold a few years ago for whatever reason. I kept a digital copy of it. Um, I rebought it prior to us uh, doing the review last week on the podcast. And the version that I bought of it is terrible. <laughs> and I think I talked about that a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. It's got no special so it features. A bad it's a bad transfer. It basically looks like they just dumped the DVD onto a Blu-ray. Um, mm. It doesn't look a whole lot better than the, the DVD version of it. And that's disappointing. Like, um, So, yeah, luckily there's a different DVD out there. point I'm getting to is that there are there's another version of the film, a Blu-ray that Scream Factory put out that does have a high quality transfer of the film overseen by the director himself and it's got tons of special features and uh stuff on it so those things will still get me to rebuy so i'm sitting on a copy of that movie already but i will gladly you know dump another 20 bucks into getting that extra stuff especially the good transfer of the film is so important to me um, yeah i know some people I mean, just the... don't under like don't really understand like why do you care about that but um i don't know watch a shitty grainy version of a movie like Dog Soldiers, where there's a lot of dark or a lot of high contrast, so dark yeah. and light, and it really can be a little hard to watch. Um, yeah. Oh sure. Well, and I think the I, I was actually watching some some little featurettes on the the making of an American Wolf in London uh, again to, to prepare yeah, for that, this. And that's another it one that called to me that that no this this type of filmmaking doesn't exist anymore. It just really doesn't, and it's kind of a shame. And I get why, because it's expensive, but it requires it requires artists, and those artists are out there, and in many cases they're looking for work. Yeah. And the sculptors, the painters, you know, the 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 engineering that went into figuring out how do we make this thing happen and make it look real, um, and it that's a that's really a lost art. I know practical effects practical effects do still exist. Uh, I know there are films I mean, that still use we've talked them. About I know that before. the new Star Wars movies are peppering them in, but not enough, in my opinion, to, to want to see a making of 
feature at. You know, like yeah. I'll be honest, when when Jurassic Park came out, I I ate up the making of Jurassic Park stuff. I watched it over and over oh, again. Oh yeah. Because first of all, computer animation was new, so seeing a scene of a behind the scenes thing where here's a guy at his computer and it's Dennis Mirren and he's rendering dinosaurs. It's like, wow, that looks cool. And then it was what's Stan Winston making. You know, right. he's making a full robotic T-Rex for that scene. Nowadays it's like mostly computer animated. I know the new Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom did use a lot of animatronics and I thought that was really great and it really helped. But I was gonna say I think there's the a renaissance time, for practical effects. Um and I, people are I, and demanding I do, it again. Yeah, and I do think that there's a place for CGI. I, I, I tend to say that my personal preference is blended effects. So yeah. where you know you you do practical effects where it's practical, and you use CGI to fill in the gaps. So, you know, sequences that are just unfathomable from a practical standpoint. Um, you you of course would use your green screen and your CGI type, yeah, um, filmmaking approach, but. Yeah, I don't think I. I think practical effects rarely... became it got the reputation of being too expensive, and whether that's true or not, I'm not sure because there's a lot of movies that honestly were made on a relatively low budget that have fantastic practical mm-hmm. special effects. I, I I think common Hollywood like thought on it is that we we went to CGI because practical effects is too expensive. We can own our own CGI studio. They can do all of our effects for all of our movies. It's all in house. We don't have to hire, you know, KNB. We don't have to hire ILM. We don't have to hire all these other, you know, effects houses to do our work. We can do everything in-house. But then they end up just hiring those people anyway and using their (laughs) effects stuff to do all their finishing work. But But I think we're also seeing an era in in the films that we, you know, especially in the one we're talking about tonight, where they had to invent things. They invented a whole new form of practical makeup effects for this because what they were trying to show there was no other way of doing it you had to come up with something now when you look at if this film were to be made today and i do understand that it is being remade there is a remake of an american world in london coming and it's actually um by max landis so uh john landis's son so the same the director's the original director's son is is producing so yeah so that should be interesting yeah but i'm curious to see how much of this is going to be is it going to be mostly CGI? Is it going to be that augmented blend like you're talking about where you've got, you know, you use it to fill in the gaps? Or is it going to be full practical like they did back in 81? Yeah. I'm leaning towards it probably going to be a, a mix. I don't think they could get away with doing this movie again, um, you know, with uh, with all CGI. I think we've seen what happens with that. But yeah. I guess before we go even further, we should probably describe the film for those of you that haven't seen it. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Hey, just a reminder, all the reviews we do here on the Video Junkyard podcast are full of spoilers. Now, most of the movies that we are reviewing are older than I am, so if you haven't seen them yet, get out there and watch them. But just as a warning, there are spoilers in these reviews. Spoiler alert. This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon. I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Fate let one live. A lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 
considered a horror comedy uh, and, and the comedy is quite prevalent in it yeah it was written and directed by john landis who if you're not familiar with john landis as a name if you've seen animal house uh, or brothers. if you've seen the blues brothers you know john landis so he has a, a, a bit of a amusing dark sense of humor in a lot of his films um it also stars uh david naughton uh jenny agutter and griffin dunn and really that's most of the cast it's there's a few other people uh that do have some bit parts in this but the three those three are the three main character it plays it's it's really much about david uh naughton who plays a character named david kessler and um uh griffin dunn who plays a character named john i'm sorry jack goodman they're on a, a backpacking trip through europe and they happen to be hiking through uh the english countryside on the moors and they get attacked by a werewolf one of them is killed the other one survives which means the curse is passed down to him and then it's he is you know kind of what happens to him when he gets to london so it's a pretty simple movie i think that's one of the things i really like about it is the story is very similar um in a uh, an interview i read recently with with john landis uh, and also reading some some comments that max landis has come out with as he's preparing for the remake of this he brought up a really interesting point that i never really realized before i always knew this is quite a simple but really full film uh, what Max Landis pointed out recently, and I have to agree, is that the movie is strikingly linear. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, there's main character attacked by a werewolf, goes to London. There's a few, you know, scenes, does da, 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 becomes werewolf, does this, becomes werewolf again, does this, end. There are some other side stories, but they do nothing to drive the plot. Not saying that's a bad thing, but it's extremely linear. Yeah. It's a very simple linear story that you don't see very often anymore but it makes it extremely accessible it does as far as yeah and i think in a lot of ways american werewolf in london is a, a good modernization of the wolfman story i mean it's really yeah if you put it in and you, and you mentioned the linear kind of quality of it but um what's his name kurt soidmacher uh that wrote the wolfman i mean it's, it's a very yeah. similar it really um, is story to his his screenplay and yeah, so yeah, like the, just which the, I think a lot of those older Universal horror films were. Yes, very much. Very so. linear and very. And that's simple. why I and think this is like kind of a throwback. This movie, although modern in a lot of its sensibilities, its use of violence, its use of special effects, um, sex, obviously, it is pretty much story-wise is just a Universal horror mm-hmm. film, a Universal monster movie. It's very similar to all of those, including the fact that the monster is it. it I think I guess the way that Max Landis described it is the best way because it's it's really is just about uh, David Naughton's character David <laughs> uh, in the in the movie. What was his last name? It's the Kessler. Kessler, yeah, David Kessler yeah. in the movie. Um, he it it's really 
just about his experience. And the second that he he goes through this this thing, turns into this monster, and is eventually in the end, you know, semi tragically killed, it yeah. it ends. I mean, it gets out of it just as fast as it got into it. It's boom, gone, end of movie. Um, so yeah, the other characters are somewhat side uh, characters to his struggle. He, it's very much David's story. Right. Right. And again, these are, they're, they're likable characters. I mean, you know, we were doing this as a two-parter against dog, not against, but you know, uh, kind of the counterpart to this would be dog soldiers where the characters are, you know, really these kind of characters that you, you care about and they, they spend a good job in establishing them. I'm not gonna say they don't establish the characters in here. It's done in a very different way. You know, you get the impression that these two guys, that that David and Jack, have been friends for a long time, and they're from the same town. They went to the same high school. Mm-hmm. You get the impression that this might be, you know, like a college break or maybe before college thing. Yeah. So I think it's the, definitely it's the good old American um, backpack across Europe college trip that you know kind of mythical thing that i don't think as many people do is that talk about doing it but right um yeah they're very much you know old friends that are gonna you know hoof it across europe they're starting in yeah. england obviously they got their backpacks slung on so they're they're backpacking and obviously their destination is is italy they keep talking about ending up in rome where he's supposed to meet up with this girlfriend ish esque character um a maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Depends on which one of them. You Debbie ask. Klein, yes. the infamous Debbie Klein. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there's there's some very great. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the shots in this are they're they're not anything groundbreaking. You know, as far as like the start, they go into this this inn called the Slaughtered Lamb, mm-hmm. uh, which is odd right off the bat, and they walk into just a bunch of drunk guys sitting around this pub and there's a pentagram on the wall with candles which is really kind of creepy but nobody's paying attention to it you know and a lot of the scenes are very classic you know got two strangers walk into a bar and everybody stops and stares at them <laughs> yep. it's all stuff like that the, the, the kind of nowadays pretty well, I mean, derivative. It, it gets that kind of stranger in a strange land vibe going you know you got two people that are um most likely, and I don't, you know, you don't know for sure about these characters that the only time they've traveled abroad, but you get the feeling that this is a new experience to, for them, especially being out in rural England, you know, northern England, right. out on the moors, uh, stopping into a little village pub. Um, I think it's it's maybe a little overplayed, like everything. I mean, everything yeah. in that film's a little over. Um, and yeah, the, the tongue is very firmly in cheek for yeah, the entire and, movie. And the movie's very comic. Like, there's, it's definitely got a... Um, it not it, it. I don't even know if it, I would call it tongue in cheek because it's it's certainly a comedy. Um, we can get to sure. into this a little more later, but I think that's exactly why nobody knew how to distribute the film. Or well, he he John Landis actually sat on the screenplay for I think twelve to fifteen years before getting it produced because nobody knew what to do with it. Like everybody thought it was too violent to be a comedy and too funny to be a horror movie. So it was just nobody had any interest in making. A movie they yeah, couldn't, they and, couldn't and, and, figure I mean, out, you know. Um, I think he, and, and this, this what, is... what's awesome about that is he goes, he does end up making this film um, on a fairly uh, low budget and fairly independently produced, I believe. Uh, Universal ended up distributing this film, but I don't think they had anything yep. to do with making it. And mm-hmm. um, he does get the film made, and pretty much, in Wikipedia, made this claim, um, and I think I'd have to agree with it that pretty much. 
he invents the modern genre of horror comedy at that point. Like, it didn't really exist prior to American Werewolf in London. And a lot of films follow this, like, pretty... All the way into the early 90s thing with, like, Beetlejuice and um, movies that are, like, a, a little bit violent and have the horrific imagery but are definitely comedies at, at their roots, you know? Um, you know, I think, though, that I, I, I remember reading that and... I would modify the statement to say that they kind of rejuvenated the horror comedy because when I think horror comedy going back to its origins, I think stuff going back to like Evan Costello, um, Evan Costello, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the that's Evan always Costello the stuff. the one you can from the classic era. I definitely, um, yeah, I mean they you certainly know. existed prior to that. So yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's a a rebirth of that. Um, I would even say also go and watch um, the original Invisible Man with Claude Rains. Oh yeah, yeah. There's some there's some comic parts. There's even comic parts in Bride of Frankenstein. Oh yes, James Whale's sequel. There's you know the the villain villager lady who's just annoying, but that's supposed to be comedy at the time. So, but but still, oh, yeah. those it, it, Bride of Frankenstein's full of stuff like that, including the yeah. the Mad Doctor. I forget what how did I forget what his name yeah. is? But yeah, I, you know, but there's a so lot of comedy I, in that as well. This I think brought it back because what you had a lot in the '70s of were, were some very different kinds of horror films and. Uh, I think you had your first generation really of very cool. realistic, very violent, um, very disturbing, because we, we were living in a... Uh, the MPAA really only started actively rating films in, what, the late 60s, right? So right. Um, once the R and, and, and even the X rating allowed mass distribution of um, films that were considered to be you know too violent for some audiences... Basically, once the rating system came around, although later it will have very bad effects on um, kind of limiting people's creativity, I think initially it allowed people to push the envelope a little more because they did know that even though they had this um, story that was a little bit more adult or violent or... Um, scary or terrifying that it, it could they could still tell it um, in the way they wanted to tell the story and it would still be distributed they would still get you know um, movie theaters to play the film and, and etc well really this it's one of the first I mean I, I don't even know I know it's always called horror comedy yeah and and again it, it's a very it, this would be a very hard film to distribute I, I don't I don't blame anybody who passed on it because they're like, what do I do with this? Because at those times, it was this was a very different film. It has a very odd tone to it. It kind of goes back and forth. It's, and I think this was one of the first films that was really like, you know, black comedy or dark comedy, as they call it, or gallows humor, because right. the comedy in this is really quite dark. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like the... I mean... Oh, the... scared person running, like in, you know, the... the in, the Visible Man, or in, even in Abbott and Costello, where it's almost like the Three Stooges run into something spooky, you know, they say something funny and run. This is more dark comedy stuff, like your best friend who's been mauled to death by a werewolf <laughs> yeah. keeps coming the back fact and that visiting the main you. And comic relief in the know. movie is is how you know disgustingly rotting each time you see Jack's corpse, <laughs> like yeah. how more more rotten and dilapidated. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's stuff like to the point in the like movie theater that. scene where he's pretty much a skeleton. Uh, yeah, 
So yeah, I mean that's that I, style of dark humor. I don't think had ever been done before. No, and the, the, it was always the movie theater scene at the end of the film is is, and it's so funny because it's just prior to the climax of the film and it becoming like you know very the end of the film is almost tragic in a way. Yeah. Um it's it's like it's a hilarious scene. Like it's a laugh out loud funny scene when he's introducing him to all of the people that he killed. The <laughs> he's killed. And there's like the engaged and couple. There's like, this like active like throughout John Landis's script, and it, I think it's a lovingly because I mean he he must have spent some time in England prior to making this film, and they made this film in Surrey and in Wales, and obviously spent some time in in England when making it. So obviously he's a person that you know isn't going to be hypercritical of, of British culture, but there's definitely some little, like, humorous jabs at, like, you know, the well-to-do, um, proper mm-hmm. culture of, um, you know, of England and of, of the UK, and uh, I think, like, that that scene definitely is one of them, like, where they, you know, all but, you know, pretty much say, it's not an actual line from the film, but all but pretty much say that, you know, they're very cross with you for <laughs> ripping yeah. their throat out, and and but they're all willing to help you decide how to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And you know that's kind of the the whole scene is them just giving him ideas on, oh, well, you could do you could shoot yourself or you could drown yourself or you could do this. Yeah. You know, it's there's a, a couple of scenes like that. There's um it, it's there's also some very surreal weird kind of dreamlike oh, the, scenes the, or the dream, dream sequences. sequences. Yeah. He that um, are really quite So David striking. has like as he's the first things that manifest him transforming into a werewolf is he starts having these um, series of very disturbing and very different nightmares. Um, there's the like quintessential like I'm running through the forest killing a deer, which actually is a hilarious moment, and he it really is. John Landis refers to this a little bit of a tangent refers back to I think in his uh, Masters of Horror film um, the Deer, the deer Woman. woman. Um, yeah. which he goes even further with a lot of some of that imagery but anyway uh, yeah there's that there's then another dream sequence that he has where you know he's running through the woods and he sees himself my favorite in, one in a hospital I, gurney in the middle and he's got this horrifying blue monstrous face and, yeah which is a great jump scare it's a great jump scare for the movie um and then, of course, there's the the, the really famous scene. Yeah, where I was gonna say a, one of my favorite scenes in, back home. in any movie, just because it's so bizarre. And if you're, I'm trying to put myself. I try to remember what I thought of it the first time I saw this film, and I don't. I don't remember my own reaction, honestly. Uh, I just. I remember loving this film. I don't know if you showed this to me the first time or when I saw it, but I saw it I fairly young, considering it's an R-rated horror movie. And I probably wasn't technically allowed to watch it, so. But I remember yeah, it was seeing. Yeah, probably in my house. Yeah, I was gonna say I remember <laughs> seeing this when I was. Oh, I don't know. I can't place it. So. Earlier than high school, for sure. I think I saw this movie for the first time when I was uh, probably four or five years old. Yeah. Which is pretty bad. I mean, but um, uh, I my, don't know. My parents I mean... had this one couple that they were the first people we knew that had a VCR. And they had rented this on beta. And I remember sitting on their floor, staring at it, especially the transformation scene, and just being 
enamored by it and i didn't even know at the time that their son was trying to play a prank on us he was outside banging on the window and my sister got scared and everything but i i have no memory of that so it must not have had an impact on me i just remember going how did they do that and then it had the behind the scenes feature out on it at the end oh cool and i mean before i decided i wanted to be a paleontologist someday i uh that's what i wanted to do i wanted to be rick baker i wanted to make movies like this because of how they did it and that transformation see i know with dog soldiers we talked about how you can't do it with your budget then just don't show it and that's totally fine but this is the gold standard i mean I for st- how you do it and not to down movies like howling and some others which did a very good job of that rob Bottin's work in howling is really really great once you can finally see it yeah um but in this case i mean landis is he he approached rick baker who was essentially just like a kid pretty much at the time who was doing special effects and said i think this would hurt like hell to turn from a human into a wolf and i want to see it and so the entire transformation scene is done in full lighting in a room that have never been done before um and i didn't know this until recently that rick baker and john landis had differing opinions i I don't want to say an argument because i don't think it was ever that but they had differing opinions on the design of the werewolf Rick Baker wanted the big hulking bipedal werewolf, I guess, kind of like he ended up making in the movie Cursed. Yeah. Uh, and and Landis said, no, I want a giant dog beast from hell. I want a hound from hell. Yeah, I mean, he, and he, ended up he because certainly movie, he got his was way. taking influence from being that it was, you know, set in northern England on the moors. And he wanted to, I mean, the Hound of the hound Baskervilles image is, yep. I think, exactly what he was going for. I mean, that was, uh, he, he he was drawing very much from from british culture and um just was going with that feel and i think he made the right decision for that film i have nothing against you know the the other design and i'm sure rick baker's design would have been great no matter what because he's probably the most talented guy on the planet when it comes to creature design uh, i mean maybe you could argue stan winston as well but um yeah i i used to have some minor criticisms like yeah i love this movie it's my favorite but i don't like the I don't like the werewolf design, and that was years and years and years ago. I I absolutely I don't think this film would work with yeah. a bipedal. I didn't like it you know, the first few times werewolf. I saw it either, and I think just because it didn't look like other werewolves, and I eventually became okay with that, and eventually ended up you know for at least for this film, I, I prefer it that way. I can't imagine it being any other way. No, um, I, I don't think this would work as much if it was a big because it, really it is about completely becoming like an animal. You know, in Dog Soldiers, and one of the things we didn't bring up last week when we talked about Dog Soldiers is that they still maintain some intelligence. Like, mm-hmm. there's a scene in Dog Soldiers, not to go on a rant about Dog Soldiers, but there's a scene in that where, like, the one guy's shooting a shotgun at the werewolf, and the werewolf grabs it out of his hand, turns around, and fires it back. Yep. You know, there's there's stuff like that. So they still have some intelligence, and, and that's not the case here. This is a werewolf that is a giant wolf, and it's... The way that they shot the effects of this, where you, you, you watch david naughton turn into an animal in this scene you see his spine realign you see his face stretch and it's the way they shot it you know i know rick baker complained about this a little bit but this is the business where he's like you know i spent months and months building this stretching face and they show it in the film for three seconds yeah and he goes, I remember well, being on the set and, and Landis going, all right, good, we got the shot. And he goes, seriously, that's it? You shot for 10 seconds and that's it? I spent six months on this thing. He's like, <laughs> yeah, well, we got it, so it's fine. Yeah. And that's what makes it good is they oh, never yeah. hold on the effects long enough for you to see any potential flaws. Right. And it's 
It's funny because I heard John Landis is actually unhappy. At least nowadays, he's he's seen the film again a few times and and is unhappy with the amount of time that he spent. He feels like the camera lingers way too long on the transformation, and he would like to cut it back again. But he said that because of like the legendary status it's achieved, he doesn't dare do a director's cut where he removes it even a, even a single frame from it. But oh yeah, no, I, this this is um I mean first of all the. Rick Baker won the Academy Award for uh, makeup effects, which best didn't makeup. for best makeup yep. for best makeup, which didn't exist until it could be argued. And there's there's some people that will tell the story this way that they invented this award to give to Rick Baker for this movie. <laughs> I've heard that again. Don't know if it's confirmed or not. Yeah, but no, I no, there's no that. way to confirm something like that. Of course, but it, it uh, does seem odd that this movie came out and there wasn't. I mean, this was the special effects movie of 1981. Yes. Well, and... I mean, and actually, I, I, interesting fact, and this is kind of out of left field, but interesting fact is 1981 was kind of the year of the werewolf, it seems. Yeah. Uh, major studios released three major werewolf films that year, and that's American Werewolf in London, John Landis's film. Yeah. Uh, Joe Dante's film, The Howling, also yep. came out in 1981. And then uh, Michael, well, how do you say his last name? Michael Wadley? Yeah, I think it was widely. Yeah, Wolfen. Um, yeah, his film Wolfen came out, and all of, uh, in the fall of 1981. So yeah, and, and Howling, I, I will say, even though this is my all-time favorite film, Howling was one I really, really contemplated because you were the one that you suggested Dog Soldiers, and I was like, okay, well, I'm clearly going with Werewolves on this. Um, American <laughs> yeah. Werewolf in London or Howling, one? and I kind of went back and forth and and decided to go with this just because it's my favorite movie ever. Howling though is is a great film and actually we've we talked about i don't want to leave the howling out ever from this from this uh, our podcast series so i think one of these days we're going to do a howling series episode which would be really quite oh, amusing be a lot of fun. there's there's the first movie which is great the second movie which is like oh okay that's a movie and then the rest of them are just actually, insanity yeah they're <laughs> insanity for sure they have no like we'll, we'll get to it someday but yeah it, it it would be a fun series to talk about because it's so kind so crazy almost all of but, our straight to video craziness just uh and i don't want to down you know when i talk about how this movie and its effects are so groundbreaking i'm not trying to at any way discredit you know uh Robotine's work on the howling because that really was i think the problem is that when the howling came out it had the theatrical release and it was it's a very 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 good movie and it also does a really cool thing with werewolf movies that uh most others don't. You know, American Werewolf in London is more like your classic werewolf movie as far as how the story goes. It's very linear. You know, has roots going all the way back to 1941. Yes. Uh, the Howling, a little bit different. Dog Soldier is obviously very different. Um, but you know, the um, when the Howling first came out, it, when, when it first got, I should say, a video release, they used a really bad transfer, so it was super dark. So yeah. the first dozen times I saw the Howling, I was like, yeah, this movie's good, but you can't see shit. You know, There's a transformation I, scene, but it's all in the dark. I'm not sure that I've ever seen the restored version of The Howling. Well, the, in um, while we were in college, so in the early, the aught thousands, mm -hmm. right? So between, the naughties. You know, the, the naughties. <laughs> the naughty thousands. Um, yeah, it was it was released on DVD. I do have a copy of it. I thought I showed it to you, but maybe not. Yeah, but it, maybe it is, I did. It is an I, enhanced version. And it wasn't until then that I was like, I have oh, a copy so of it again what on everybody's DVD. talking about. It's still in it's, plastic, though. I don't think I've checked it out. But hopefully I'd that's check the it cleaned out. up version, it's, I hope. It's, I think that's the way you're going to find it on yeah. DVD now. Because I think the version that came out in like 2002 or three was the version that first came out on DVD. I don't know why they do a 
any other one. Yeah, um, I don't either. I don't know why you'd go backwards but, into. Band and it's transfer. it's it's a very very good movie. The werewolves look cool. The the transformation scene is cool. It's your kind of big hulking werewolf thing like Baker wanted to do. Um, I have no complaints. That's a that is a great werewolf movie. This one just has like a little, you know, it's it's a personal thing. I think this one though the the they I would never... still show it in more light the transformation scene in more direct lighting in yeah. this one than they do in the Howling. The Howling you can see it better with a good transfer. About the Howling, it's another favorite werewolf film of mine for sure. Um, however, it's only one of the best werewolf films. American Werewolf in London is a strong candidate for one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Like so, there's yeah. something that transcends genre in it, and and the fact that maybe because it, it doesn't really clearly set itself in one genre, it's it's just very. I feel like in 1981, right. this kind of a film was probably a really like wonderful breath of fresh air. It was something new and fresh, and it was a horror film, but it was funny, and it was, you know, all these things, and it was very, it was very straightforward, but um, still had a lot of imagination and fantastic stuff going on in it. And um, I don't know, it just uh, there's something about it that is always stuck with me. It's an uh, a favorite, all time favorite of mine. So. Well, and you mentioned funny, and it's not even just with some of the little gags and jokes and, you know, dark comedy things that's in it. There's some really clever things done in this that are, are uh, funny little references. And this, again, I, God, we should, might as well have just done this episode on both American Orphan London and The Howling. Uh, <laughs> the Howling does it, too. Like, there's a bunch of characters named after directors and actors from previous werewolf movies. Some cute stuff. Joe Dante's known for doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So kudos to him. What's... Um, well, I mean, both Joe Dante what? and John Landis are, you know, fans of the classics. Like, they grew up on the classics. Like, Joe Dante's admitted a yeah. hundred times to being a monster kid, and John Landis as well. I mean, they were the ones going to, in the 1950s when they were growing up, you know, going and seeing the original renaissance of the Universal films and seeing the Hammer films right. as they were coming out and, uh, you know, going to all the monster movies uh, coming out in the 50s. And I think that's what makes these two films, and I know I'm going to focus it on this one, but what makes both of these films really um, kind of treasures is that you can tell that they were made with, with real love from the filmmakers. I mean, one Absolutely. thing that I've always gotten a kick out of in an American Werewolf in London is how the soundtrack, you know, I, I try to bring up soundtracks of films too because that's such an important part of the movie. Every song in this film <laughs> has the word moon in it. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. which is just it's and such almost a... all of them are like um, classic um, like Americana either um, vintage rock and roll or um, I'm not yeah, sure you would couple... consider like so, a cut like the Van Morrison song I'm not sure if in 1981 that would be considered oldies yet but generally they were all you know kind of the Oh yeah, yeah so they use use Moon Dance. They use Bad Moon Rising from Creedence Clearwater. I, I swear this is the movie that made that song. Oh, I what think so today. for sure. Um, maybe I'm you, wrong. Got, maybe maybe people you know had a different impression of it prior to this, but I know that's this is probably the 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 movie where I got the first distinct impression of that song, which is just, you know obviously a favorite. I can't I can't hear that song without thinking of this movie, and exactly. I know there's a whole generation of people like that. Exactly. You know? So it's, it's the same uh, kind of effect yeah. that a lot of Quentin Tarantino's films. He he's always been a, oh, yeah. the way he uses yeah. music in his films, especially pop culture music. Um, reinvents those songs because all it's suddenly you can't think of. I mean, I'm thinking of Steeler's oh, Wheel yeah. stuck in the middle and its association yeah. to Reservoir Dogs. 
I mean, do you ever hear that song and not think? Yeah, of it, yeah. That you, movie? Anytime Steelers that's, weird, that's the same. <laughs> so stuck way in the middle with you comes. <laughs> everybody does the dance with whatever they're holding in their hand. Um, you know, right. whenever I every time I hear Miserloo, I think Pulp Fiction. And yeah, absolutely. I had actually heard that song other than watching Pulp Fiction, but. Um, yeah, there's there's a really important aspect with music, and this was one. I mean, you got two different versions of Blue Moon, like a doo-wop version, mm-hmm. and more of the the older, uh, you know, calmer version of it. And it's, um, you know, there's there's a lot of that kind of in here. It does a really really good job of of building up a fun atmosphere. This is a it's a scary movie. I wouldn't show it to my kids yet. You know, there's yeah. some stuff that I don't want to have to explain and. I don't think they really need to see Griffin done with his throat torn out, but it it's it's accessible. It's you can get grossed out by this and still there's, stay in your seat and keep watching because the story. I story's don't think that there's good. anything that, and maybe it is. Maybe I'm desensitized because of the kind of you know extremely violent cinema I I can sit through and enjoy and and laugh at, but um, I don't think there's anything in this movie that's so gratuitous that you're gonna like get your average moviegoer to get up and be like, I can't watch that, and you know, leave the theater. Um, there's certain some moments that are gonna make some people cringe, but I don't think you're gonna scare anyone away with the gore and violence in it. No, um, not in but this what one. it what it does have is let's we've been talking about the comedy aspects of this film, but let's take a minute and talk about how it does effectively work as an incredibly effective horror film as well. Um, there is a couple of sequences in this movie, and and maybe just one that I want to highlight and kind of like talk about at length, and that is the um, tube station attack. So it's uh, oh my god, where yeah. I, I just random man finds himself alone in the uh, tube station. I think it's uh, I'm trying to remember what tube station it was. It's like Tottingham um, Court or something like that. It's just kind of like a brilliant, brilliantly crafted horror scene, and I think that's the moment in that movie where you're like, whoa, hang on, I'm watching a horror film, I kind of forgot there for yeah. a minute. I, I guess it is just post-transformation, so you remember, I guess that, that reminds you, but... Um, yeah, it's it's during his first night out, essentially, as a werewolf, right? Where right. he's, you know, he, the, a lot of the other kills in it are kind of jump scares. It's people like, ooh, what was that? And all of a sudden, ah, yeah, and then all of a sudden, face uh, in for um, quick. And, but this one builds some tension. You get this guy just, and it's all kind of shot from the werewolf's perspective. I, I was going to say, that's what impressed me yeah. the most about it watching through this time is you see the werewolf for about four seconds of that scene at the most if even and, and you really don't see it but you see it and it's from a cool shot too oh, it's like yeah, from the top high, of the escalators angle, looking like, down yeah. um, and it comes up from the, the top entire of the screen. scene is built Oof. from sounds in the distance the character's reaction to like hearing something and then once the like chase through the the tube station starts it's all yeah like you said from the werewolf's point of view so it's like this low angle fast moving camera and I just sat there thinking about how brilliant it was that this scene is so effective, and and it's a, it's it's like an edgier seat. I at least I would claim it's an edgier seat kind of horrifying scene in this film. Um, well, it's kind of and almost, it doesn't and actually not... use it doesn't use any creature effects. It doesn't use any blood and guts. It doesn't use any. It doesn't technically use any jump scares even. It is no. just bu- all about building tension, and it's a perfectly crafted scene. Like. I feel like you could show, like, you could be like, hey, you want to watch a three-minute werewolf movie? And just play that scene. 
Oh, yeah. And it would totally work, just all in its own, like, be like, well, that you know, there you go. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, or and even, it's... Even it's just, like, yeah, three-minute horror very film. effective. Um, so, there, yeah, I mean, John Landis has his chops in places. I think a criticism, if it, the, you threw a criticism at Dog Soldier, yeah. like a small criticism could be made of this film, is that it doesn't have a lot of consistent style to it. It's very bare bones where um there's not a lot of fancy camera work except for that one scene for some reason they use the the just very effectively use that low angle like fast moving uh what will become to later known as the evil dead cam kind of (laughs) Uh, right i was gonna bring that up that it's very similar to the evil dead thing except in this case it's actually scary there's no slapstick comedy in between right yeah Um, this is actually like a scary it's a it's a it's a very effective scene but oh i would totally agree this there's there's that and then it's the next scene out of that is him waking up in the zoo naked in the wolf paddock which yep. is funny it, then it goes into comedy yeah, again I, and that's which, a great the entire like nude man running around london sequence is very good comedy i mean the naked american man stole my <laughs> balloons one of my favorite lines <laughs> you know and i i read a um an article recently that somebody had had uh, posted on one social media platform or the other, and it was critiquing how a lot of the big blockbusters film. They were talking more about like superhero films, but most blockbuster films today will throw in kind of snarky comedy here and there, and really how that's it's a way of masking drama. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want your audience to get too sad, so throw in a couple of jokes. Right. You don't want them to get too emotionally attached, so you know have a a wise crack here or there, like kind of pretty much what the tony stark character does constantly. it's about breaking the tension supposedly right and in they were actually saying it as a bit of a criticism not that you shouldn't do that because it's very effective and films do it all the time but that too much of it makes it where it almost seems like you're you're reluctant as a filmmaker to say actually make a statement yeah right I mean, that's and a that's a in, huge criticism that I've heard, and a valid criticism. One of the uh, I don't even say one of the only, but a valid criticism I've heard aimed at um, the, like the Disney action movies, the Marvel, the Star Wars, since they've taken yeah. over those things. Um, people have made that criticism that those are literally just full of those things, and that yeah, to it's the not point that where they they're use... not that they feel like they're shying away from a you know actually addressing any of the major issues that they kind of yeah. toy with. Um, yeah, it's not that it's right. not that you shouldn't use humor in those films. It's that the humor is used in a way where it's too disarming, and it actually comes off like you're not going to commit. This is a different kind of film, though, because they're using humor. I don't feel to break the tension. I feel like they're they're using the humor to kind of point out some absurdities. Yeah. In 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 the genre, you know, like. The whole, uh, to be honest, the whole that's a common thing in, in werewolf movies is, oh, I woke up after a night and I was alone in the woods naked or I was in a bunch, or surrounded by a bunch of wolves or something, you mm-hmm. know. This does it in kind of a funny way. Or, you know, there's always a werewolf curse in a werewolf movie, right, going all the way back to the wolfman. Mm-hmm. But imagine if it's the ghost of your dead friend and he's a rotting corpse, you know. So it's, yeah. it's yeah. not done to break the tension. It's done in a way to kind of poke fun at, common tropes this film in a way comes off aggressive and i think that's what i like about it aggressive not in a mean way but in a oh you want to see a werewolf transmission well how do you like this or oh you you know those basic werewolf movie tropes yeah well here they're kind of silly and it's i like that about it though i like that it's 
it's yeah, a simple and... film that that's that kind of has some guts to it you know right and i think it's funny you bring up the uh you know rotting friend type because i i originally not originally but i had heard this described one time to me as like oh american world from london is really just a buddy comedy just half the you know 90 percent of the movie one of the buddies is dead <laughs> it's like oh well, yeah yeah okay. Yeah. Um, not sure that's really true because Jack's screen time is not quite enough to make it um, that to be like the main driving force of the narrative but um, mm, okay. I could see it taken that way <laughs> so you know one of the other cool things about this too is uh, there was a planned sequel there was a planned sequel for this that in 1991 so 10 years after the original came out mm-hmm. um, uh, John Landis was approached about doing a sequel and he had a sequel written he wrote one where the uh jenny agutter's character alex um it, it focuses more around around her but it also the, the main part of the plot of this potential sequel was going to be that um debbie klein you know the, the girl that the two characters are talking about turns out she actually she was supposed to be jack's girlfriend in the movie but mm-hmm. what you'd find out in the sequel is that her and david had had an affair and he had never told jack about it and yeah. it was a secret that he kept from his friend. And apparently the 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 day that he's just wandering around Alex's apartment in London waiting to transform, he actually writes Debbie Klein a letter and tells her all of the things that, you know, I've been talking to Jack even though he's dead and he told me all of these, I'm going to turn into a monster. She comes looking for him in the sequel. Mm-hmm. So the sequel is about Debbie Klein looking for what really happened to Jack and David and she runs into the doctor and she runs into Alex and... It, I guess, you know, when when he was when he wrote that, he brought it to the studio, and they they hated it. Like he actually said in an interview, they almost acted like they were insulted by it. <laughs> they thought it was so bad, oh, no. so it was never made. And then, of course, in 1997, 16 years after the original film, we get instead an American Werewolf in Paris. Yes, which absolutely sucked. and it was now it involved a werewolf society and there's there's a very vague loose kind of but not really reference to the first movie i I just Um, read actually today that there is a scene that they ended up chopping from the film that directly ties it to american world yeah that david was would have been of the same lineage well it's just the, the, the girl What's her name? Delphine or something in the... I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Um, she's actually the offspring of David and um, Nurse Price from American Werewolf in London. She's the, her, yeah. her daughter. Was that a deleted scene or was that... I, it's implied in the, in the movie. It's it's further explored in a scene that they cut, apparently. Okay. So, yeah. where yeah. The, you find out she's aware of it or something. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, and in this... I, mean, I in am this not remake, familiar enough with the sequel... Yeah, it was. Sure. It, it, it wasn't just the moon that would make you. There was a drug that would make you. So we have bad CG, nineteen ninety seven era bad yeah. CGI werewolf fights. And okay, here's an embarrassing um, admission. I actually really, really liked this movie when it came out. But keep in mind, in nineteen ninety seven, <laughs> I was, you know, um, fourteen years old. So I give myself yeah. a freebie on that one. But I haven't seen it since. I mean, I probably watched it. I went and saw it in theater, and I really liked it. I thought it was a cool movie. Um, and I probably saw it a couple times after it came out on video within the two years that followed that, and I have not seen it since. 
and I don't think I'm going yeah. to. I'm just going to be happy I enjoyed it when I watched it, I guess, and just not... I don't think I'm going to revisit that one. Because I read about... Like, I even just read a synopsis of it, and I went, ugh, that just sounds like a terrible movie. Like, how did I yeah. How did I really like this movie? When it... It but was, I did. It was... I, I admit it. I, I, I saw it in theaters and remember coming out just, like, thinking yeah. it was really cool. But... Well, I think, again, you know, it was because it was an American werewolf in something mm-hmm. but it yeah it's a really really bad movie the effects are terrible it it has really nothing to do with the first I film remember it being about like in. yeah a culture of werewolves that you know have raves it's like an under underground rape. Rape, werewolf rapes yeah and <laughs> yeah. you find out that like oh there is actually a cure for it it's like adrenaline and it's just really really stupid and yeah. I mean, it, it's it's an absolute train wreck of a movie. So you know, we always say we always pick movies we like. Well, here's one I fucking hate. Yeah, I mean, we'll um, have to review that one of these days and just. Yeah. Now there was also though going back to American Werewolf in London, there was a radio adaptation. Yes. In 1997 on BBC, uh, that actually had some of the characters back as as their you know Jenny Gutter came back, Brian Jenny Glover who does yeah. have a short uh, role in it. Um, but there's it actually changes things a little bit um so like they actually do change the story slightly they add some other characters and and they um just kind of change some things up and i haven't heard it all the way through but i've heard it's quite interesting yeah i actually Um, just found out it existed when reading about this film in the past couple days and one little thing i found super interesting about it was that in the bbc radio drama version they actually tied the werewolfism or the lycanthropy back to the original 1941 Wolfman. And oh, cool. that um, it is implied, or maybe directly said, I don't remember, that the wolf that attacked Jack and David on the moor mm-hmm. was actually an escaped lunatic. convict or lunatic. And he they pull his records of who he was from the oh, asylum yeah. that he was staying in. And his name was Lawrence Talbot. So, from the Wolfman. Yeah. So anyway, they, they pulled an interesting tie back to that, which is kind of cool. Um, and I don't think they, like, deliberately hit you over the head like, that's from the Wolfman. But, uh, you know, anyone who's familiar with it would have caught it. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just... Uh... You know, I, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with this um, remake. Remake. You know, Max Landis is doing it, so it, you here's know, a I, question, I and we got to kind of wrap, wrap this up. up and, yeah. uh, but I got a question for you, like when it comes to like remaking American Mural from London, and does this movie work now? Can you make a movie this simple and still like get an audience and excited about it or into? You know, I don't know, because I guess to answer that, I'm going to, how I'm thinking about it is, if you would have asked me this in 1979, in two years there's going to be a movie out that's essentially a modernized remake of The Wolfman, would it work? I don't know. I don't know if I would have believed you. Um, I know that one thing that Max landis is doing he he said you know i've I've kind of been following a bit of this remake and there's not a lot of news on it i mean it was announced in 2009 uh in then it just kind of went through you know delays and stuff like that in 2016 is when max landis 
you know, was approached and he said he wanted to make it. And then in November of that year, he said that he was going to write and direct it. And then the last update that anybody's heard was from December of 2017, which is where he's like, he's completed the first draft of the script. But he also let a few clues on there. One of the things he said is that pentagram that's in the slaughtered lamb in the original. He's like, I, th- I thought it'd be fun to do some more with that. So right away, the plot's getting thicker. Yeah, that's what that, and right that's what away. I was thinking. Like, if they're going to remake this, it's going to have to be... I feel like they're going to feel the necessity to put in a whole lot of extra detail about, you know, the, the plot or where it came from. I mean, even look... I mean, look at how things ballooned into the John Landis idea for the sequel, the radio drama, the... You know, yeah. sequel that we got, unfortunately. But look at like what they felt like they had to throw into those stories to get a sequel made to this movie. Uh, it reminds me of the multiple times that they've tried to remake the the Wolfman itself. So the uh, the Benicio del Toro vehicle yeah. Wolfman movie yeah. wasn't a horrible movie, um, but it wasn't very good. It was bogged down by like that's it felt it was necessary to make the story bigger or deeper and really that was what its downfall was is it just didn't hit on the the brilliance of the simplicity of the original film and this did this this was the best and it's not a remake of the wolfman but it's got enough similarities this is the probably the best re-envisioning of the wolfman that has been done since the original so well yeah um, hats off to john landis and the people you know behind american world in london because they they made the second perfect you know wolfman movie <laughs> well and i i think even you know you mentioned that remake with benicio del toro which again you know, it's not a terrible film but it's very forgettable yeah there's a few scenes that are cool i had nothing against like the cast i just didn't care for the story and honestly I, that I film love has always actor, felt the whole, entire cast are actors that i love it just it's not a good movie know, so the entire film feels more like a remake of the hammer film curse of the werewolf with oliver reed than it does actually that feels like the wolfman yeah including you know? that the the wolfman looks more like the oliver reed werewolf than than the lon Chaney, it, but it does yeah and it it went too big and i think that's i mean i think they feel know, like they have to now to sell the movie i mean to get people to go see it and I think that's my worry still... about like even even though it's Max Landis and John Landis is producing and he's he's very behind you know his son doing this um, I feel like they're just gonna yeah. they're gonna have to dig around in the narrative or in the story and and give us something new and that's really not I mean why why do a remake at all make the damn sequel make the real sequel you know um, yeah I'm cool I think with that kind of like if you want to dig around and get deeper into the story let's continue it not retell it. But yeah, because who knows? this is I mean, already a these remake. Are, these are smart. You know? These are smart people that make good that make good things. That's make good thing. Um, but anyway, <laughs> these are. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Though I think right. this is one that I'm, I'm not mad that it's being remade. I, oh no, I I'm I try to say I've never honestly, been that way. But 100% honestly, we, we we pass a lot of judgment, but I try to keep an open mind to things. Like I'll see it if it comes out. I mean, it's yeah. I'm not gonna be one of those people that you know before i've ever even seen a trailer or uh, you know much less seen the film that get onto the social media and vent all my hatred towards it i have no, no i have no malice I mean, I, towards anything i haven't seen i mean this could it could be fantastic who knows as i've mentioned before there's only one franchise i've ever seen where a new chapter whether it was a remake or a sequel or a prequel or whatever actually affected my ability to watch the other films and that was indiana jones and kingdom of the crystal skull 
that made it hard for me to go back and watch the other films. No, oh, we'll have to talk about that one someday because I'm a but I'm a bit of a know, defender it, of that movie, and I'm not going to go on the record and say like, oh, it's really great because it's got its problems. But I it does. I don't think it it's does. So yeah, bad. and I think that would be something <laughs> worth worth visiting about here on on here one time at some point. But I think you know if if they do end up if this does right now, what do we have? We have a, a director who said he has a, a first draft of a script, which means it still probably yeah, it, won't. It, happened i don't know that yeah who knows um, i mean that doesn't mean it's coming that doesn't it, mean anything it could and, and if it does i'll definitely go see it and i'll yeah. i'll give it a fair shake and i have i hope if it does come out i hope it's good so um, but this should, is just a a damn near in my case a damn near perfect movie it's yeah. it's simple just, it tells a story and it does it in a great way i was just gonna say should i even ask what oh, is your is letter my grade plus. for this this is this is <laughs> This is my A+. Plus. And you know what? This is the kind of thing, too. Like, when you ask somebody, what's your favorite food? And they'll name their favorite food. It may not have been the best-tasting food they've ever had, but it's their favorite for reasons, right? Yeah. This is my favorite film. I, I'm not saying that it it's absolutely perfect. I know I just said it's damn near perfect. And, I didn't say and are you going to go on record and say, is it is it your favorite werewolf film, or is it your favorite film? Oh, this time? is my favorite film of all time. Yeah, This is my favorite film of I, all time. I think it's a good not, candidate. It's not Jurassic Park. It's actually it's, this. Yeah. It's probably yeah. not my favorite of all time, but man, it's got to be up there. Like it's, And I'm, I'm going to... Letter grades is silly with this one. It's definitely an A+. If I could yeah. give it a better grade, I would. Um, it's quintessential viewing if you're listening to the video junkyard podcast and you haven't seen i say this every week but if you haven't seen an american Werewolf in london please go and watch it oh, because go check it out it's 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 one of the only films that i can always watch yeah i've seen it a million times but i can always watch it and it's just, again a lot of this is personal nostalgia this was my movie that made me interested in movies i mean this is a like movie the behind the scenes of movies. I again i feel like we repeat ourselves a little bit when we're gushing about all our favorite movies on this podcast but this is a movie that literally has everything in it this is a horror movie it's a monster movie it's got a bit of a detective story it's got you know the werewolf mythology it's got a mm-hmm. bit of a romance a romance to it as yeah. well that is taken seriously it's not um it's not a it's not eye candy. It's not just throwaway. It's, yeah. not, it's not no, there it's... to just let, let's throw some gratuitous sex into the movie. It's there's definitely some some yeah. It's got some a legitimate of that too, and that's romantic, fun. You know? Yeah, but it's it's got a romantic subplot for sure that is. It, it, like I said, towards the end, it, it, the ending of the film feels very tragic because of that. And uh, I know we're trying to wrap up, but I also I think it'd be a shame not to bring up that this is also it's very satirical. I mean, you brought it up a bit too, like the way that they talk about the British you know proper and all that but it's <laughs> yeah. it's very satirical of not only british culture but also in a way of like you know american male culture similar in a way to uh, yeah, what, I mean, what um, eli roth with hostile right you know, uh, the, the frank oz's character things. in american werewolf in london comes in he plays the ambassador and oh God, he yeah. comes in and and like, i think that's exactly what you're you're touching at is yeah. or getting at is the way he like <laughs> his goddamn american kids kind of a thing you know (laughs) well and he's he's an american ambassador and his like way of like you know well don't get so emotional like he's the total opposite of like the british response to everything that's going on like he's yeah uh, you know i know you've been through a shock but don't don't get so emotional about all of this like yeah you only watched your best friend die and uh (laughs) you got mauled by an animal 
and now you wake up in a hospital. Don't get so emotional. Yeah. yeah and it's so. all being said in Fozzie Bear's voice. Yeah. Because it's Frank Oz. So, it's, yeah. you know, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to have finally formally now reviewed this film. Um, I, I check it off the bucket list, I Again, guess. Again, this is one we could gush about for hours and hours, yeah. I'm sure. And I, right. I always, we get to the end of these things and I always feel like, man, we, we could have said this and we could have said that, but, um, the end of the day it's just a fantastic movie um i agree with you it's one that i can put on at any time and watch and i could watch this I, i've probably seen it 20 times or more in my life um yeah i could gladly watch it 20 more so well and then you know this is uh so this kind of concludes our you know our uh, werewolf two-parter insert howling sound effect here <laughs> yeah, because I'm I'm not gonna try it. We tried that last time, but uh, we do have some cool stuff coming up soon. Um, another film that we're gonna be I was just, should we tell people what we're gonna be reviewing next time? Yeah, let's let's break the schedule down for. A okay, bit here. so let's... coming up next, uh, upon special request, uh, we are going to be reviewing Buckaroo Banzai. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Eighth Dimension. Dimension. Yes, and the person who recommended this, you know who you are. We'll say his name anyway. Dan Eaton, a friend of ours from our hometown. This is this is his American Werewolf in London. <laughs> yeah, I, oh yeah, for sure. And he's the one that turned me on to this movie. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb and see if he wouldn't mind coming on the show and chatting with us about yeah, Buckaroo we'll Banzai. We we'll see if we can get Dan on here. I, I think uh, I think that'd be a lot of fun. And then following that on September 14th, um, we are going to be reviewing Dark City. Yeah, uh, I'm looking really, forward really to diving cool back into this movie. one. I remember liking Dark City a lot, but it's not one I've seen many times. So, Well, it's one of those films that got kind of overshadowed by The Matrix, and it has some parallels to it. It came out around the same time. But, you know, the, the late 90s, was there was a lot of these kind of, you know, dystopian films that also dealt with kind of, you know, is is reality a construct thing? So Dark City is one that you know. It's wonder if, if people have heard of it. They're like, oh yeah, that was really good. But most people just it went under the radar. So we're gonna we're gonna try to bring it back up a little bit so everybody yeah, can check that out. Yeah, and it definitely deserves a second look yeah. for sure. And then following that, we got a whole bunch of really fun stuff that we'll, well I guess leave you hanging a little bit for there. But, yeah, some uh, some of the features. Yeah. Uh, well, we're gonna do a two part dinosaur film special. We uh, we're going to eventually get you your this. Uh, phantasm franchise yep. episode that we've promised for so long we're going to do um, some exorcist films i won't tell you which ones specifically uh we also have a halloween special that we're starting to pick out the details for yep as well as a two-part tarantino show so um yeah just some of the stuff coming up may not necessarily be in that order but uh, right, yeah. Some of the stuff coming up on the Video Junkyard podcast in weeks to come, um, and of course, as always, if you have any ideas, feel free to shoot them to us. We're we're trying to get to those. So both Buckaroo Banzai and Dark City were ideas submitted by by listeners or members of our Facebook group. So um, we would love to do more of those in the future. So please yeah. let us know if you have one of those your favorite movie that you feel is a little underappreciated, or maybe it's one you bring up and at you know at the water cooler at the office and everyone's like no i've never seen never heard of that one um let us know we'll um we gladly take a look at it. especially if it's something i haven't seen i'm always uh happy to get turned on to a new forgotten classic absolutely so and also be sure to uh not only with our facebook group but also 
uh, Twitter, email, and Facebook, of course, too. You know, drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Um, America One from London is... is are you another person who actually loves werewolf movies? Did we miss anything? I know we, we had to boil it down to two, but what are some other films that you would like to kind of share your opinion on along in this oh, yeah, genre I mean, of horror? We can definitely do another two-part werewolf episode. There's plenty more out there. Yeah. So drop us a line. Tell us what you think. That's videojunkyardpodcast uh, at gmail.com. Yep. And if, uh, like I said, if you tell us what you think about any of these films or any other films that fit into the genre, let us know. Uh, if you share the opinions or you differ from from what we've been talking about on the show. But anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening and for tuning in. This is the Video Junkyard Podcast. I am Joe Peterson. And I'm Eric Gilbranson. Beware the moon. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. You just can't let them go? Go! Stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. We want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast and remind you to find us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash videojunkyardpodcast on Twitter at videojunkpod and on Instagram as Video Junkyard Podcast, all one word. Want to thank you again for listening, and keep digging. Who knows what treasures you'll find in the Video Junkyard. <laughs>